Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Rayhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Neflin. Thank you for joining us for Match 10 of our Sports Bracket. This week, we will be discussing 2000's Remember the Titans, as well as 1996's Space Jam. Yep. They're not a bad double feature, actually. No, they're, they're definitely not the worst double feature we've ever had on here. No, they're not. <laughs> okay, what is the worst double feature we've had on here? Um... I would say that Blue Crush and Chariots of Fire was uh, pretty oh, dissonant. That was grueling. Although I still think that Annie and Cowboys and Aliens tops it. <laughs> oh yeah. Like there's nothing coming off of this cheesy Broadway musical production of Annie and then going into a Cowboys and Aliens film that John Favreau was directing way too seriously. Sidebar, can we imagine John Favreau's Annie? Uh, I don't know. He's had some luck working with child actors. I mean, Iron Man 3 as well as The Jungle Book. Okay, sure, that's fair. I don't think it would be a musical, though. God, it'd probably be, like, really weird and a little gritty. Yeah. It would be really interesting is uh, casting Robert Downey Jr. as uh, Daddy Warbucks. Ooh, interesting. I mean, he can sing, so actually you could do that. Huh. Anyway, <laughs> let's go ahead and start off with Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans, yes. So, Remember the Titans is based on reasonably historical things that, you know, happen. There's a lot of real people in it. A variety of the main characters are real. A variety of the main racists are made up. They needed some racist strawmen to have the plot explain our bad, basically. So they made up Coach Terrell, who's the kind of more racist coach on the football team, and also Ray, who's the sharp angler jawed one who gets kicked off the team halfway through. Those aren't real people, they just made them well, which also I, I get like making straw men for the worst of the people is probably a pretty solid choice. Real life was ostensibly not as bad as the film portrays. Like it portrays integration as being happening right now when really it had happened in sixty five, so several of the schools have been integrated for a, a, you know half a decade now. At this point, there's being merged was part of the bigger problem. So in real life, part of the stressors were also about having too many players for the number of spots on the team. But also, I mean, it's still, you know, the early 70s. I'm not going to pretend that racism wasn't a part of that. And that was still a thing. The DVD commentary from a lot of the real life people is actually really interesting if you want to like hear their takes and stuff. The general vibe is that a lot of things were heightened to, for the sake of the film. Which so, is not yeah yeah like that's totally happens all the time yeah like irl coach boone was a little hurt that you know his character was such a hard ass and didn't show some of the more softer sides of him but i, I get that i get why he's like that yeah i mean i've also heard from players that uh he was definitely a hard ass like that and he didn't necessarily need to be yeah while we're here uh, cheryl yost wasn't quite as ridiculous as the film portrays her she was into football but not like a football-based disney villain as portrayed. She's also dead by the time the film comes out, so she couldn't really have a say in her portrayal, which Mm -hmm. is unfortunate. I would actually love to hear what she has to say. And the bit where Sunshine kisses Bertier didn't happen in real life, apparently. So, that's good. I mean... Not great to throw this guy under the bus like that, but... (laughs) I I get it. Storytelling. Mm -hmm. Gotta, Gotta throw that in there. Unlike when we talked about Cool Runnings, learning about the history of the film didn't make me particularly uncomfortable with it. There's stuff where I'm like, you know, probably not the greatest choice, but I get why you're doing this Hollywood. Hollywood is like that. Disney also had the bonus of hindsight for that. They knew how things went with Cool Runnings, and they are definitely starting off Remember the Titans on a much more serious note than Cool Runnings had, and that 
flows throughout. Like, they're specifically dissecting the issues and the controversies surrounding the time. They also had a longer portion of time between the events and the filming of the movie. Right. Whereas with Cool Runnings, it was only about five years. Mm-hmm. Whereas here you can kind of, you can use it as a period piece as opposed to a, like, recent interest piece. Mm-hmm. So, a weird number of films on this bracket have this whole dictator-democracy dichotomy going on. Like, this one has... This is no democracy. It is a dictatorship. I am the law. I'm wondering if that's just because you had that stuff in um, the running movie. Chariots of Fire? In Chariots of Fire that was directly commented on that and they're playing off of it, or if that's just a part of sports and, and culture. I'm pretty sure it's a part of sports and culture. You have these two very distinct archetypes for coaches in sports media. You have the total hard-ass who runs his team ragged to try and win, and winning is the sole and only goal. If you get lost along the way, don't bother coming back to camp. Just hitchhike your hind parts on home. Any questions? Coach, it's a high school football team. We're not the Marines here. And sometimes that is eventually softened and they reach a middle ground in the film. And sometimes, no, the coach is just an asshole and it feels like torture to these players. And then on the opposite side, you have the coach who is not just getting them better at the sport, but teaching them life lessons, getting them pre- prepared for what happens after the sport, turning them into good people and good citizens. The surrogate father figure. Mm-hmm. Gary, if you want to play on this football team, you answer me when I ask you, who is your daddy? Who's your daddy, Gary? Who's your daddy? You. Uh-huh. And whose team is this? Is this your team? Or is this your daddy's team? Yours. Mm-hmm. Oh, the who's your daddy part. That... That scene makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, um... It's not great. Especially since Jerry doesn't have a dad in the picture. It's just so gross. I get that they need to show what a hard-ass Coach Boone is, but it's one of those, there are probably other ways to do that thing, and we get many, many other examples. Yeah. I will say that Denzel is doing a great job here. Oh yeah, I don't put any of this on Denzel Washington. Yeah, like, like... I don't blame him for that. He's doing really well with what they've given him. It's just that what they've given him is a little... Yeah. There is this one scene in the film that he's showing this vulnerability. I think is really interesting, especially compared to most of what we've seen from Boone prior to that. Right before the first game when they tell him... I just found out the board didn't even think you'd make it out of camp. Now that you have, uh, I've learned that the first sign of trouble... Trouble? What kind of trouble? Lose a game. They'll fire you. And we see him really nervous before the game, nervous enough where he's vomiting. Which actually, real thing. And then after that scene, how it manifests is this paranoia towards Yost and his decisions kind of second guessing him. And he feels like, oh, Yost is undermining me so he can get his head coach job back. Yeah, I think that's some of the best scenes in regard to Boone in the entire film. So I forgot that the whole, if the team loses one game, then Boone is fired thing was part of the plot. So right before that happened, I wrote down, if we don't win at football, segregation is back on. And oh, wait, I guess, yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I think the way the film portrays the very high stakes with that pushes it a little towards the campy level, but also get why. I think the film does a pretty 
decent job of trying to ground uh, you can't lose a single game specifically because there's this whole integration and well we did our part and we compromised and we hired a black head coach but we're looking for any possible excuse to fire you and put in Yoast. And it makes complete sense that that's what a racist school board would do. Uh, and yeah, uh, unfortunately, I could totally see something like that happening today. Oh, for sure. Like, that seems like a news headline waiting to happen. While this film doesn't always handle racism super well, a thing I really do like is that some of the ways it comes out are subtle things that aren't like the direct obvious thing. Like you have the rival coach calling Boone a monkey, which is you know super shitty, but then you have stuff like that where it's super clear that they are looking for an excuse to fire Boone, but uh, they need a pretense, which definitely is a thing that happens all the time for people. And the way that Boone calls Yost out on coddling the white players. Some of the boys just don't respond well to public criticism. I tell them what they need to know, but I don't humiliate them in front of the team. Which boys are you talking about? Which ones are you talking about? I come down on Bertier, I don't see you coddle him. Come down on Sunshine, don't see you grab his hand, take him off to the side. Which boys are you talking about? Now, I may be a mean cuss, but I'm the same mean cuss with everybody out there on that football field. The world don't give a damn about how sensitive these kids are, especially the young black kids. But because he shows a little bit more sympathy towards them just uh, subconsciously, which I think is a really interesting real point. Did you mean coddling the black characters, the black players? You said white players. Yes, thank you. Sorry. Yeah, there's also the scene where Ronnie is trying to take Petey and Blue into like a restaurant after a game, mm-hmm. and then they're specifically denied service and told to get out. Yeah. That scene is really tense afterwards, and the way that Petey feels attacked and really frustrated with Ronnie not believing that that's exactly what would happen. And I also get Ronnie's confusion at the whole thing because he's still new here. He just moved from California mm-hmm. and he doesn't get what the culture is like around here in comparison to where he came from. Right. I really like that Ronnie says, I didn't know, man. I told you what you mean you didn't know. What, you think I was playing with man, you? Man, he ain't know. He didn't want Blue, to he don't want to know. A really real thing. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, I feel like the film doesn't ever quite dig that much into why some of the black players would feel uncomfortable around the white players. Some of the stuff they go with is like, your music is bad and that kind of thing, but it doesn't really dig into like the still very recent history of lynching and that kind of thing. The film is both heightened, but also is a little afraid to go all the way with things. Yeah, and we can see that in scenes like there's at one point coach boone is giving a speech to the team and he mentions you know the other teams don't have to worry about race we do mm-hmm. and it like it's just scratching that surface of white privilege like well these other teams it's not a problem they don't have to manage these racial tensions that we do that's something that we have to deal with and they don't because they're all white teams mm-hmm. which not actually a thing from history but no yeah yeah, literally every other team that they played against was integrated already. Yeah. But, again, it heightened for the film, heightened for the film. I think I talked about this last time, but I wish Sunshine wasn't here in this plot. I mean, I know he exists in real life, but I feel like he's kind of one extra part of the narrative who is given extra time, and I don't really know that he adds that much. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the scene with the diner and whatnot but he also brings the whole kissing thing with jerry and whatnot and and the like is he is he not gay aspect that kind of doesn't really get resolved yeah and i think that's just the fault of 
this is a huge cast and they're juggling so many people. Honestly, I'd cut Ryan Gosling's character before Kit Pardue's. I have a fondness for Ryan Gosling's weird presence in this film where he feels like he just was there on accident. I actually kind of love him and I wouldn't cut him for anything. He's so, like, what is he doing in this movie? Mm-hmm. What is his character? Yeah, like, there's also, like, Rev and Blue don't do a whole lot towards the middle of the film. You've got Rev, who is quarterback for a little while, then injured, and then comes back. And then Blue has a few scenes where he's important. I think, like, one of the big ones is the scene in the locker room with the Yo Mama jokes. Yeah. And as problematic as that can be, I also really love that Yo Mama jokes are, like, the great equalizer. While problematic, that is definitely a thing that felt real. Yeah, that's a thing that teenage boys do. Until you said that, I forgot the rev injury thing was part of the narrative because there's so many players going in and out of the teams. And as someone who doesn't really follow football, I wasn't always keeping track with who was on what part. I understand that offense and defense are different things, and that's about it. But it doesn't strictly bother me because I don't think that any of them get too much time. It creates a feel of a living world with a very full cast. It doesn't feel like there are plot lines being dropped. It just feels like there are some that could have had more time to them. Yeah, and I do like that in general we have a pretty equal amount of screen time being given to black characters as well as white characters. We've got Boone and Yost who are like pretty equal as far as screen time and narrative go. And then for each player, there's a counterpart for them. Like we have Julius and Jerry, you know, pretty equal weights. You've got Ronnie and Petey in a kind of a similar situation. You kind of kind of keep going down the line and they get less screen time each step down, but both players are about equal. Yeah, I think that's also a pretty good thing to do for helping us figure out who the characters are, just to kind of have them get like their opposite number. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like how there's basically an opposite number for each of the characters in the Civil War airport fight. We haven't met yet. I'm Clint. I don't care. I want to talk a little bit about the editing. Um, mm, sure. There are some like really strange cuts in the film. One of them is pretty early on where Yost is hearing about what's going on with his coaching position and he's looking off into the distance, but it's towards the camera. And then we just kind of get this very abrupt cut to something else. Mm. When we were watching it the first time through, you mentioned that it felt like there was more content for Yost in that scene that was really abruptly cut for time. Yeah. There's also a little bit of that really abrupt cutting at the, I can't remember if it's like a press conference or like an award ceremony or something for Yost uh, where they're trying to like lose this game and you know, you're going to get head coach of the year Mm -hmm. uh, sort of thing. And, for the Hall of Fame that didn't exist yet. <laughs> so those moments were kind of weird. It, like, it just, both of them involve Yost, so I'm thinking, like, there might have been just content that was cut for the film, and it just was kind of a little bit of a hack job, because maybe it was a little bit closer to release, and they didn't have as much time. Sure. On the other side of editing, I think the foreshadowing on Jerry is a little much. I think that... Like, having two or three fewer scenes of, oh, something awful is about to happen to Jerry would have been totally fine. <laughs> it's very heavy-handed. It's not quite ripping the Ace of Hearts in half and throwing it to the <laughs> ground, but it's close. 
you're right. It doesn't bother me as much because some of those scenes aren't taking place during football. And <clears throat> the back two-thirds of the film are at least 50% football is happening. And it's all at night and it's all people running around. And it, it gets a little kind of blurry in, in my memory. So there's really some variety and I appreciate that. That's fair. Yeah. And I agree that that was like an obvious thing. But I also get wanting to give some weight to this tragedy. That's yeah. that's fair. We could have also moved those scenes to other characters though. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, speaking of giving things proper weight, let's talk about Space Jam. Okay. So, surprisingly, I also get to talk about the historical accuracy of Space Jam, because Michael Jordan is just playing Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. and yeah, they got a lot of the major beats around what was going on in Jordan's life in the early to mid-90s correct. Like, Michael Jordan did retire from basketball in 1993. They don't get into it in the film, but he had already kind of been considering it since uh, his time on the 92 uh, Olympic basketball team, aka the Dream Team, where he won his second Olympic gold medal. Yeah, I would also be kind of like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good here. Yeah, like, you know, three NBA championships and two gold medals and... The other major thing that impacted his decision to his tire was the murder of his father earlier that year. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, unfortunately, Michael Jordan's father was carjacked and murdered. It was very traumatic, and I think that's one of the big reasons he's decided to go into baseball and kind of fulfill that dream that his late father had of having one of his kids playing professional baseball. But I also totally get not having a carjacking and murder to start off your kid's film. Yeah. He died? And this is supposed to be a kid's movie. Like I thought the opening scene of the film with a young Michael and his dad is, I think, kind of a tribute to that, which is really heartwarming. His dad is still absent from the film, mm-hmm. so that creates an absent presence because we had him in that first scene, so, yeah. which achieves some of the same idea without being too much yeah. for kids. And he did go on to play minor league baseball for the Birmingham Barons, specifically them, because they were the minor league team that was associated with the Chicago White Sox. Hmm. And the White Sox and the Bulls at the time had the same owner. So it was really easy to do that. And it also allowed the owner to like kind of maintain uh, Michael's contract for basketball while he was quote-unquote retired in case he changed his mind. Oh, sure, that makes sense. Which is why his return in 95 was so easy. It's also interesting... This is a part that's historically inaccurate. Rather than heading back into basketball because he, you know, renewed his love of the game by playing with the Looney Tunes against aliens. Open there. He left baseball because of the ongoing MLB strike, and he didn't want to be grabbed as a replacement player. Oh, nice. AKA a scab. Hell yeah. Props to Mr. Jordan. So some of the union politics from the film were actually historically accurate? Yes. (laughs) Fascinating. As for some of Jordan's relationships, Jordan did know Larry Bird personally. Bird spoke pretty highly of Jordan uh, as an athlete, and they even played on the 92 Dream Team together in the Olympics. Jordan's other golf partner, Bill Murray, I cannot find any like definitive proof connections that they were friendly with each other before the filming of this movie. But Bill Murray is a huge sports fan. He is owner or part owner of a number of minor league and independent baseball teams all across the United States. And he is also a huge Chicago professional sports fan, which makes sense. He was born and raised just North Chicago. Wow, I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense for Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like those three golfing together is not too much of a stretch. Also, fun fact, Jordan Bugs Bunny had worked together prior to this film. 
they appeared together in advertisements for Nike. And honestly, those advertisements are kind of considered the foundation that Space Jam was built on. Sure, that makes sense. Also, fun fact, Bugs was 57 years old during filming. Wow, he looks really good for 57. Looks yeah. very, like, very sprightly. Yeah, able to play very athletic. Well. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. Although, he's dating a really young lady in the film, which makes it a little weird, but Hollywood's like that. Mm. It's not as bad as Halloween 3. That reference everyone will get. That's about all I have for, like, historical accuracy. Did you find anything about Patrick Ewing breathing fire? <laughs> I did not. So, in the film, one of the Monstars, uh, at one point, breathes fire to, bur- uh, to burn Foghorn Leghorn and take the ball away. Which, fair enough, except none of the other Monstars can do that. Or, at least, none of the other Monstars are shown to be able to do that. And while acknowledging that it's the Toon world, things are like that, Toon physics seems to be only about like stretching and being able to take damage, not being able to like interact with the elements in very unusual ways. Which implies to me that that Monstar got the ability to do that from Patrick Ewing. So apparently, in the Looney Tunes universe, Patrick Ewing has the dragon heart or whatever. I wouldn't necessarily say it's beyond the realm of Toon physics. I mean, Toons routinely like eat spicy things and then like they have smoke coming out of their ears or their heads turn into like a train whistle. That's fair. So we're implying there's like a, like a cut few frames where you're like popped in a jalapeno or whatever? Yeah. Okay, sure, I'll take that. I mean, that makes much more sense than Patrick Ewing being able to secretly breathe fire but not telling anyone until his talent was stolen by an alien in this movie. Where's that spin off? <laughs> <laughs> Along those lines, I do really love how great of caricatures all of the monsters are to the athletes they took their talent from. And the way they were like able to match up those personalities. That's something that they didn't have to do, but they, it was like kind of the extra step. It really paid off. And also means that the athletes they stole their powers from get to kind of be caricatures of themselves in some of the scenes, which is really fun. You get some really great like comedy bits. What are you saying? That I'm trying to disobey my mama? I didn't say that. You didn't, Mumsy. But I love my mama. And I, I mean, while it doesn't matter as much to, to me as someone who doesn't like who didn't come up with basketball all the time, I'm sure that for people who knew those faces, they were like, oh wow, it's so cool to see like Patrick Ewing as a space demon. I love the B-plot of all of those players, like, you know, going to therapy and having all these medical tests on to figure out what happened and whatnot. I am less enthused about all of the other NBA players getting really paranoid about it and closing down the NBA. I don't really think we need those scenes. So I think you're right that those scenes don't work. I think the reason that they don't work is because that makes a kind of more expanded universe wherein if Michael Jordan and co. don't win this basketball game, it's the end of basketball forever. That's basically what's happening in this universe, but the film doesn't do a quite a good enough job of making that explicitly clear that those are the stakes. And those mm-hmm. don't really become the stakes until towards the end when Michael Jordan makes the like, whole deal to give the powers back. Yeah. If we win, you get the NBA players the talent back. But what if we win? If you win, <laughs> you get me. So that becomes a very big subplot that doesn't really seem to go anywhere. You have to either go all in with that, like really dig into the idea of what would it mean if basketball was gone forever, or yeah. take it out and have it be just a personal journey for these athletes. I think either would work, but we get kind of a half-hearted... Uh, half-hearted attempt at both. Yeah. I think I would just take it out. Like Devote those one or two scenes to the athletes and like how it would be very bad if they didn't get their powers back. Well, they're... Their skills back, not their powers. <laughs> if Patrick Ewing doesn't get his fire breathing back, what what happens? Yeah, let those be emotional stakes to really dig that in because there aren't, isn't really enough emotional stakes of basketball mattering to the world. 
And honestly, because of some of the weirdness that Michael Jordan has to go through with all all the stuff with being treated like this entertainment piece as opposed to this skilled worker, and all the stuff with the various like brand deals and stuff, it doesn't quite endear me to basketball. We do get some scenes that kind of show people enjoying basketball and kids like looking at the basketball stars, but it's not quite enough to make me think the loss of basketball or even the loss of these yeah. players matters as much as I think the film wants it to. Yeah, I'm seeing those themes with the way these players are treated as commodities. Yes, as commodities, opposed, that's what we're looking yeah, for. As opposed to, like, individuals. And it almost seems like it's coming at the big thing going around at the time where, like, a lot more corporations were looking to sports stars, uh, if, like, for brand deals and whatnot, and we... We're seeing sports stars in themselves become brand, like with Air Jordans and the shoes and everything like that. Like, we're getting a little bit of critique here, but we're also getting a little bit of critique in a film that came out just a couple years later with Hercules. And there, it's also kind of just not handled terribly well. It's like, they toss it out, but they don't really do anything with it. These are also made by, like, big corporations, and it's hard for a corporation to make a film about how corporatizing entertainers and workers is bad. We're not going to get Disney sorry to bother you anytime soon. <laughs> God. Wouldn't wouldn't you watch it, though? Uh, I mean, Abigail Disney, she's got the money. <laughs> I, I guess, yes. As a literal Disney princess, I hope that she <laughs> <laughs> defeats the villains and sings about it. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about Disney, we're talking about Warner Brothers. Um, yeah, it would be hard for them to really tackle that, and if that's another subplot that they would have to give more time to, and this film is very uneven with how it distributes its time. I was making notes about that, and then I realized, wait, I'm critiquing what is basically just sort of a comedy Looney Tunes made-for-TV movie with a budget for not, like, digging into union politics and the cultural ramifications of basketball on the American psyche. Maybe I'm asking too much of it, so I'm not sure if that's really fair. So you can set it aside this week, but not last week. Okay, la- <laughs> I, this, is, this is a personal growth arc. You're seeing this live on air, folks, that I am, like learning how to set aside my politics so that I can enjoy things again. <laughs> Sidebar, I had a roommate a long time ago. I was talking about, you know, some problem politics and a thing we were watching, and he says, Jackson, do you like any movies? <laughs> <laughs> I think you have these, like, come-to-Jesus moments about my ability to enjoy film. Yeah, like... I don't know, kind of sidebar to the podcast as a whole as opposed to just this episode. But yeah, like we, we definitely critique movies and we see like, oh, that's not the greatest. This hasn't aged very well. But almost every film that we watch on this, you know, watch for this podcast has some redeeming quality to it. I mean, we even had good things to say about Blades of Glory. Mm-hmm. I mean, it moved on. <laughs> yeah. It moved on. <laughs> We're watching it again. Yeah. Next, <laughs> next episode. It's going up against Karate Kid. Wow. <laughs> Like, I, I think we should just come up straight and say it. it's okay to like, watch, and even enjoy problematic things. It's when you are using your enjoyment and appreciation for it in order to ignore those problematic things and say that those problematic things don't matter, especially that they shouldn't matter to other people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to critique the things you love so that when they get remade by Disney, we can get a better version of them. Or I guess, heck, even here with Space Jam, we're critiquing things that we didn't like about it in the hopes that Space Jam 2020 is a better film. I think it's been pushed back to 2021. <laughs> Space Jam 2021 is a better film. <laughs> we'll edit that in. 
But circling back a bit, I think the thing that Remember the Titans does better than Space Jam is that it makes me understand why football matters, as opposed to why Space Jam doesn't quite help me understand why basketball matters to the general public. I get why it matters to the characters, but not to the world at large. Yeah, that is one thing that not all sports movies tackle very well is the impact of these sports and viewing those sports on the audience, both the audience viewing as well as the audience within the film. And that doesn't always have to matter. Like in Wimbledon, the stakes aren't really about like the future of tennis. It's more like personal stakes, but for things where the success of this football team will determine how segregation works out. I think you really have to like, okay, are we going to be a like personal growth narrative for a or a group of athletes? Or are we going to be commenting on the sport in general and like what it means to people or problems that we see in the book? And like, you can do a little bit of both, stick it, accomplish that. And I argue that Remember the Titans does both too. I mean, yeah. all the characters have growth arcs and get decent commentary on how football brings people together. Yeah. It's just unfortunately something Space Jam does not do very well. I mean, we get a little bit of a growth arc with some of the athletes who have their talent stolen as well as Michael Jordan. But kind of beyond that, it's just a, hey, what if the Looney Tunes played basketball? Yeah. Which is, again, fine. That's a great premise. I'm here for that. But because we don't really fully understand on an emotional level why Michael Jordan chooses to give up basketball and the emotional impact going back to it has on him, it doesn't quite hit us with the same impact it could have had if there was a dissection of that decision, even if it was a different reason than real life. We've talked a little bit about the the whole how Michael Jordan negotiated the terms to try and get the athlete's talent back and what it would have meant if he loses. And we get the cutscene as Mr. Swackhammer is narrating all of that. And we see an animated version of Michael Jordan in all of that. The animation style is so pretty. Yeah, and honestly, that scene made me wish that rather than we had live-action Michael Jordan on this green screen, we just got an animated Michael Jordan. I think it would have been a very different movie, but I think it honestly would have been a little bit more enjoyable. Heck, I'd even enjoy like that animation style for the real world and then the Looney Tunes animation style for the Looney Tunes world and have that Michael Jordan be in the Looney Tunes space. Because that animation is very stylized and has a lot of like bright, harsh colors, mm-hmm. it makes it easier to communicate emotions, which could have been really helpful for getting inside of some of these characters' heads, which we don't really do as much as we could have. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Jordan is a little wooden as far as facial emotions go throughout the film. His physical acting with just being on a green screen is pretty good, but like as far as like emotional depth, it's not really there. Luckily, the film doesn't demand too much of him, but that's kind of what we're complaining about, that like the film doesn't give us that much depth, but also it wasn't really trying to, so... Yeah. 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 The film's mission statement was, what if the Looney Tunes play basketball with Michael Jordan? And it delivered on that exact premise, so I'm yeah. okay with it. It just kind of felt like they were trying to get a little deeper with it in a variety of areas, and none of them felt like they paid off mm-hmm. completely. I think we've kind of exhausted this line of discussion, but I want to get into some of the just weird stuff in this movie. Oh, sure. Like, the morons can just turn into ectoplasm yep. and... Look from space. Are you saying the morons are space ghosts? I'm not not saying that. (laughs) You're right, it is weird, but because that is, I guess, just part of their biology, I'm okay with it. It's weird that they never used that ever, like, to avoid physical torment from Swackhammer. Oh, sure, that makes sense. Like, it's just, oh, this is how we're going to 
get their talent. I would have been much more interested if they followed the players like after the game and just like had this like ray gun or something, mm. or just have them like touch the basketball. Like if you have like the like, transfer back and forth, be that way. That's fine. Yeah. Is Swaghammer the same? species as they are can he also theoretically turn into ectoplasm and steal the talents from someone i don't know he seems similar to them but there's also some of the alien patrons at the theme park who are very much not the same species as the morons or swackhammer so he could be he could not be i don't know the the film doesn't really concern itself a whole lot with the world building outside of the normal looney tune stuff and the normal real world stuff i'm okay with that i don't think we needed to have like I was going to say, we don't need to have Michael Jordan in a basketball space opera, but wow, okay, I guess I am saying that. <laughs> That's the problem with my ability to critique things. <laughs> my tastes are weird, so I can't say objectively things like that. Like, I would love Jupiter Ascending starring Michael Jordan. <laughs> Gods. <laughs> There's some weird references going on here. Like, there's gamblings and guns in this kid's movie. It's fine. It still just weirds me out that, like, oh, yeah, let's reference Pulp Fiction in this kid's movie. Yep, it's, it's very weird. I mean, it, it felt like there was a very specific reason that they did not have Yosemite Sam here, and then they just went ahead and did that. I mean, I guess this is prior to Columbine. Yeah. So that makes it not as weird for it to be here. Like, there wasn't as much of a stigma around guns plus children yet. Right. It is really weird in retrospect, but there's a part of me that kind of is glad that it's in there because it makes the movie weirder, and I think the Looney Tunes need to, in fact, be loony. Yeah. So it works. I do really love that a lot of the humor is all just classic Looney Tunes. Yeah. Well, a lot of the Looney Tunes humor is classic Looney Tunes, but, like, stuff from real-world characters is a lot more, like, dry, kind of wry. I guess humor for adults. And next to me, he's doing something very weird in his raincoat. And so I like that you have that separation, not just of visual presentation, but also of comedy stylings. Mm-hmm. Want to get into extra innings? Yeah, that sounds like a good place to go. Cool. So we've got best training montage and best training gimmick. We've talked this about this before. Space Jam doesn't really have a training montage. Mm-hmm. There's a, like, getting ready for the game montage, but that's about it. There's also a cleaning montage. I think we have to give it to Remember the Titans because, like, the training camp, that first act is really solid. Yeah. Uh, so gimmicks, I guess we kind of decided on placebo steroids versus the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to give that to Space Jam. I just love the weirdness of, yeah, we're going to insinuate that Michael's taking steroids and that's what makes him great especially at just a few years later there was going to be a huge steroid scandal in major league baseball <laughs> um yeah i mean admittedly i feel like it doesn't technically qualify as a training gimmick but i think it is still really fun and weird <laughs> while there are some interesting gimmicks in Remember the titans there's a lot of them that are kind of filtered through the whole hmm coach boone i don't like your training style so i'm less excited about them so sure let's give it some face jam So, because we're moving on to round two, and we've kind of already talked about this, um, and specifically because both of these are team films, I want to talk about who's the MVP for both teams. Oh, wow, okay. I think I'm going to put forward Lola Bunny for Space Jam. Interesting choice. She dealt with sexism in a largely male-dominated field and held her own and made a noticeable impact on a generation of furries. Ah, fans. Um, (laughs) Which is very respectable. I will grant you that. This is also her first appearance, and she 
made a big enough impact to continue on. That feels more like a rookie of the year thing, but true. otherwise MVP is just going to go to Michael Jordan and that just seems boring. So yeah, I'll go ahead and agree with you on Lola. Sure. I didn't know this was going to be a thing we were going to talk about, so it might be slightly telling in my notes I just have lasted for MVP. <laughs> I think for most valuable player for Roman Thines, I have to give it to Jerry. He's the pivot point for when this team starts coming together. And then after his injury, that's the last kind of shot in the arm that the team needs to win the championships. And he is also the one who's specifically like, hey, my best friend Ray is not good for this team and needs to be cut. That's a huge sacrifice. And him being able to realize that and act on that is impressive. So... That's where my boat's going. Mm-hmm. I also really appreciate that in his scene with Julius where they're supposed to learn about each other, he cast against Julius not like in a, oh, you're a black person kind of way, but in a, here are the things I've noticed about your playing style that are not working. You need to fix those. And Julius takes that to heart. And I think it's really, actually a really nice subversion that he actually like had some valuable things to say. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with giving it to Jerry. Okay. I, I think Room of the Titans is a better film. Yeah. I would agree. Uh, As much as I love the weirdness of Space Jam, Remember the Titans is a technical marvel as far as filmmaking goes. It's really, really solid. There's so much good character acting. It handles its ensemble cast incredibly well considering how large it is. I think it's better as a sports film. I mean, Space Jam is fun, but there's really only the one actual game that we focus on, and that game is not being played according to rules of the sports. It's not a good example of that game. Yeah, I would also... I guess they're playing Calvin Ball in a baseball stadium, really, but... Mm. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment. So, yeah, Remember Titans is going to be moving forward. I think this was an interesting thought experiment to talk about both of them. I am surprised how grounded we kept most of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, while they are very different movies, they're dealing with similar themes through different lenses, and I think that's also really cool to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, Next week, mentioned it earlier in the episode, but we're going to be moving on to the second half of round two and we have another kind of weird probably a little one-sided matchup of uh, the karate kid and blades of glory if you want to catch that episode as soon as it goes live be sure to follow us at facebook twitter podbean spotify sure a number of other podcast hosting apps until then this has been the gratuitous pausing podcast thanks for tuning in